Walters Kluwer Health Chief Technology Officer Jean-Claude Sagbini has been thinking a lot about how the pandemic will change healthcare. In this episode of the Health Biz Podcast, we discuss his predictions for 2021 about scaling telehealth, accelerating evidence, predicting and preventing with artificial intelligence, the changing roles of healthcare workers, and moving beyond interoperability to superoperability. I've been following Walters Kluwer Health, and in particular, its up-to-date offering, for more than 20 years. It's exciting to see how the company has taken the original vision forward. I'm your host, David Williams. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to subscribe to HealthBiz. Jean-Claude, it is a pleasure to have you here today on the HealthBiz podcast. How are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Very good. Listen, we're going to talk about some predictions. I think anybody who's making predictions these days, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, we'll we'll take them for what they're for what they're worth. Uh, see how clear your crystal ball is. But before we do that, uh, maybe you can give us some background. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, sort of early life, upbringing, education, early career. Where what brought you up to this point? Yeah. So, um, well, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm an engineer by education. Uh, been in technology since um, you know since my sort of early education, um, and I've I've been in various parts of technology. In two thousand and five, I wanted to get into a mission driven vertical. Um, that's where I started. Uh, that's where I started in healthcare. Uh, the first um, the first foray into healthcare was with a startup, uh, WaveMark. Mm-hmm. Uh, we you know I was. One of the early people there, we started it in Boston. Uh, we were uh, looking at um, connecting, and it was a data play. So it was connecting medical device manufacturers and hospitals to optimize how they, they function together. We grew that company, exited, uh, had a successful exit in 2013. And then I continued in, in healthcare um, until I joined Walters Kluwer in 2017. I'm the chief technology officer now. And my focus is uh, now more so on the clinical side of technology, as well as the patient side and the patient engagement. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, Walters Kluwer is one of those those funny names. I have to ask you, you probably, your last name, Sagbini, is one that it's not hard to to spell, but I wonder how often people spell Walters Kluwer correctly and Sagbini uh, correctly. You get yeah. like a little prize if they do, right? <laughs> if you get both, you get a prize. Yeah. <laughs> you know Exactly. Very good. Well, as I mentioned before, um, you know, you you've made some predictions uh, coming into 2021, and quite uh, quite brave of you. And I'm hoping we can take those um, in turn, and maybe you can explain uh, what you're thinking, and we can we can chat about them. So the first one uh, that you talked about was about scaling telehealth. What's that about? Yeah. So so um, we all witnessed a mega acceleration of the adoption of telehealth and virtual care in 2020 uh, caused by caused by the pandemic uh, m- lots of the technology was there adoption was sort of early and you rarely get these moments where you can look at these charts and you see spikes like you see march which is yeah. goes from almost nothing to thousands of percent sort of increase listen it has dropped down a bit but off of its peak, but it's here to stay. Um, you know, I, I'm going to paraphrase this thing I, you know, I've heard from from somebody is like, you know, we've all now been trained and we cannot be untrained, right? So, so the technology is here to stay. Now, um, 
and and when I talk about virtual care, you know, it's it's beyond it's sort of beyond the teleconsult and the video conversation is how to engage patients without those patients being sort of uh, in front of a clinician in a physical setting. Now, people are, you know, tired of being on Zoom all day, and we talk about patient engagement. What does that really mean, patient engagement in telehealth? I know if you have the patient right in front of you, you can touch them and do whatever you're doing. I mean, that's obviously a form of engagement. What does it mean to have new patient engagement strategies when talking about telehealth? Yeah, so um, so it's about looking at, you know, setting um, sort of key objectives that you want to activate the patients towards, right? That whether the patient has some comorbidities that you want to keep under control or whether they were just discharged from a hospital and you want to get them to not come back uh, and, and, and to sort of have a proper take care of themselves. So it's about activating the patients and and putting these patients on on solutions that track them longitudinally over time and to interact with them to achieve these objective functions. Um, we, you know, it's it's a combination of technologies. So, so it's it's a combination of modalities that are video modalities, you know, digital phone calls modalities, uh, questions and answers to make sure they're doing okay, using smart speakers to engage with them. But it's the combination of all these modalities to achieve that objective function. Now, you know, certainly uh, it's taken the patients, you know, had to get on board with this, but I'd say if anything, patients were sort of ready for it and it was the clinicians who had been holding back. And to some extent where you've seen the rates of televisits drop, a lot of that may have to do, some of it's just, you know, people need to be seen in the office for certain things, but some other of it may be the physician falling back into their own um, comfort zone. So talking about patient engagement, what has to shift from the physician or you know physician practice standpoint? Yeah, I, I think the drop is a combination, right? Some of it is comfort zone. I think the bulk of it is more people have to be seen in in practice, and and COVID had numbers had dropped, etc. Over the summer, um, but but I, I I tell you where where I'm looking at what's going to change in 21 and and beyond. We cobbled all of these things pretty rapidly together, right? So we had solutions to you know that worked for small numbers. All of a sudden, the numbers spiked. And we were able to, as a healthcare ecosystem, support that. But these are by no means optimally designed solutions. I, I liken it to, you know, what's going to disappear is the parking lot and the waiting room and the check-in desk and the magazine you read and the chair. Like all of these are elements that have to change. Some of them have. But what I like about it is that this adoption has happened with solutions that are not really truly optimized yet. And the path forward is to optimize them. I think that goes back to your question of, you know, that's going to be more, even more attractive to clinicians. You know, there are some clinicians who may prefer that over the old mode, especially as the newer set of tools show up and, and make their lives better. Your second prediction is about accelerating evidence. And this one, I really think when I think about Walters Kluwer Health and, you know, the up-to-date product in particular, this really fits. I, I'm curious to hear what you're thinking about on this one. Yeah, so so it's it's two things. One is you know, it's it, we there's tons of research was done around covid, right? Tens and hundreds of thousands of publications were put out there. Um and and magazines and articles and write-ups etc. And for anybody to make sense of them is you know it's, it's a so virtual impossibility and this is sort of way a bit where we come in right to your point we right. synthesize all that what you know that's that's going to continue increasing 
you know, obviously, certainly around COVID, but also research in general. At the same time, what we are seeing is a, um, a, a sort of expectation of not only is this information synthesized, but this information is synthesized and it's, and it's provided to the clinician as fast as possible in their workflow. So, so, it's a, so it's a bit of a, I would call it sort of a combination of, you know, can I get the right evidence of the moment, right, that pinpoints exactly what the decision should be in decision support? Can I get it to the clinician as fast as they need it? And I'll actually synthesize also as fast as possible from all the research that's done. And can I embed it in the workflow where we make those experiences easier? If we get it done right, it could probably be done digitally in what we just talked about now with telehealth in a sort of an easier way than than historically in the in the physical presence workflows. Yeah, I remember sitting down literally about twenty years ago uh, with uh, Pete Blindall and Burton Rose, founders of uh, of Up to Date, and talking about how it took something like fifteen plus years for uh, new medical knowledge to actually get into practice, and it was unacceptable then, and is totally unacceptable. Now, you know, for a variety of reasons, the patients won't allow it. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's just insane. And you've seen some things change like this operation warp speed, you know, really moved uh, research and development along very fast. And yet some of these models that we're talking about, like the academic journals and so on, they've sped up, but you know, not that much. And it's very hard to organize this uh, information. So I really do see uh, this piece about accelerating evidence, both its generation, collation, and then actually getting it into practice as being something that's the kind of a mega trend, you know, for for this year and and beyond. So I'm glad that you highlighted that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of stats. So during COVID in the early months, there were, you know, sort of recalling now the numbers, but about a, more than 140,000 publications and reprints, uh, you know, in, in, in research. And as a result of that, what we ended up doing as we were reacting to all this new information sort of in up-to-date, we actually made more than 500 changes to the COVID-related topics in a period of a few months. I think that was the number between March and about August, September timeframe. Then I lost track of that. So so the, the reaction to what's happening out there was quite staggering because of the amount of, of, of publications that were happening. I think what's happened, you know, one of the things that up-to-date had done was by putting this sort of information at the fingertip of a physician wherever they uh, may be, it allowed them to, you know, go and and even even if they were in a rural area or part of a community setting and not an academic setting, really to be you know up to date, uh, literally the name of the product uh, with the current way of doing things, and that's happened even more so now. And now that also patients are reading about um, all of these uh, all the research and trying to stay up to date, it really it really does help and really is necessary to have the caregivers know what they're talking about. So that I think is a, is a great one. Now it leads a little bit into this next one, which is about predicting and preventing with AI. They put AI sort of sandwiched right in the middle here. Uh, AI, a lot of people have been talking about AI for a while. What's the, what's the element of it that you have in mind? Yeah, so we're looking at, uh, yeah, again, it's a broad term, right? You, you hardly open any magazine that doesn't, I mean, now they talk about COVID, but if it weren't for that topic, everybody's talking about, about AI and machine learning. So in healthcare, um, we're looking at success of AI in the world of what we call augmented intelligence, where AI 
um, is not in the driver's seat. The clinician is in the driver's seat and AI is there to augment that, those capabilities. As we look at the future, an area that we're seeing a lot of traction behind us, but actually lots of, we, we're actually foreseeing also tons of traction uh, ahead is this area of, of clinical surveillance, of using AI to ingest the massive amounts of data that are being collected about these patients. So we've made these massive investments to collect data about the patients, but if we don't do something about it, right, it goes all goes to waste, right? So the so it's the ingesting that data and and building predictive models that can anticipate deterioration of a patient's condition, uh, can you know, and many, sort of deterioration across many conditions, or do early detection of conditions, and alert clinicians. Uh, in workflow to be able to, uh, to, to to react. So that's an area that um, we're seeing lots of, again, lots of traction on, you know, because of all the respiratory issues with COVID-19, et cetera, we see that as, as a bit of a booster to it because now there's even more demand, not only on any type of predictive um, surveillance, but certainly predictive surveillance around ICU admission, respiratory failure, and things that and, and sort of uh, things that are caused uh, c- caused by uh, COVID nineteen. Back before the pandemic, when, as you said, AI was a very popular topic, one of the things that was starting to come to light was that you know, on the one hand, you think, well, the computer's doing it, and so it removes some of the human bias. Um, but what we saw is that depending on how the AI was set up and what data sets it was trained on, you could actually end up. Um, kind of codifying biases that were already uh, out there. And also, I think what we've seen with COVID is the, you know, I think I remember the first, you know, days in March when people were saying we're all in this together, you know, and you see these tremendous disparities, which are definitely exacerbated on many levels by COVID-19. So I know maybe what you're talking about here in terms of clinical surveillance, maybe that, maybe those issues that I just raised about AI don't fit, but how do you think about using AI at least as neutral and if not actually to correct some of the, you know, the biases and disparities that are in the system today. Yeah. <laughs> that may be for, that may be prediction for 2022 or 2023, but yeah. Good question. I mean, you're, you're, you're right on point as to the things that we should be concerned about. I, the, I would tell you the lowest hanging fruit is that when we are building AI models, it is not a technology uh, uh, endeavor only. It is technology slash data scientists combined with clinicians and down to forming your development teams or your squads or whatever you call them, where the clinicians and the developers are working hand in hand. What, uh, so so that's, that's important for a couple of reasons. One is to make sure that we are building models that are predicting the right thing and using the right variables to predict. Second thing is to ensure that whatever the prediction is, it's a prediction that can be adopted by, by a clinician. So, so that's that. So that's number one. It's, it hits the adoption, but it hits also building the right models. The second point you bring up is a really sort of actually the, the, the point you bring up is a really important point, which is if you train with bad data, you get bad results. So, and, and this is what we call you know sort of yeah. So it's AI bias. It's it's badly trained model, and this is where we get to you know the the question of big data. And, you know, trying to focus a bit, maybe not less on big data, but also on clean data. Right. Getting clean data sources, 
and and getting data sources that are normalized where the data can be acted on is 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 going to be key to achieving that good one so we'll we'll leave something to talk about for the coming years i think with uh uh with ai but yeah. i appreciate the way you put your finger on that now your fourth prediction is about changing roles and in particular some healthcare workforce roles that are expanding scope of practice while shifting to direct caregiver roles so what's certainly a lot of change a lot of pressure that uh that the healthcare workforce is under what what are you seeing yeah so so a, a couple of areas here one of them is what we realized in covid-19 time is that People have, clinicians have to step into roles that they had not historically been acting in, whether it's um, sort of coming out of medical school or nursing school and stepping immediately into the, the, the battlefield, whether it's shifting sort of nurses or clinicians who were doing task A to task B. And, um, and there we, you know, we, what we're seeing is that need to continue in the future. People have to wear, have to wear different hats. And what we need to do as an in, as in industry and ecosystem is support them with training on knowledge. So it starts with education in medical school and nursing school around dif- different areas, as well as on-the-job decision support and education, again, in workflow at fingertips, so that in an unfamiliar territory, they can still uh, sort of uh, function very efficiently. Now, you mentioned pharmacists and nurse practitioners specifically. What, what do you see in terms of uh, pharmacists? You know, clearly uh, they're filling prescriptions, they're doing vaccinations, there's probably some point-of-care testing that's going on. What, what, what do you see for these, uh, for these providers? And pharmacists are sometimes considered to be, you know, underutilized given their training. Yeah, and pharmacies are starting to move in general to what we call beyond the fill, in, in moving into... Um, into providing, uh, you know, sort of providing care or providing care support, and 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 what we're seeing is a trend where, if, uh, you know, pharmacists and pharmacies are starting to take on tasks of caring for patients again longitudinally to make sure that these patients stay healthy, remain healthy, etc. So, so that's it. That's certainly a trend that it had started prior to now. I think it's, it's, you know, I think what we're seeing in COVID actually is that lots of acceleration to early trends that had started, but had been sort of on slow burn uh, and they're being accelerated. Um, but, you know, one thing I want to I wanna bring up is another area of change for the clinical workforce is also this interaction in a telehealth setting. So it's not, you know, I mean, they were forced into it, but but you know whether it's technology or whether it's people, the whole thing is still inefficient, right? It works, but it's still not optimally designed. And what we also need, what we're seeing is more and more again clinicians adopting those telehealth services. But also we're seeing needs evolve in terms of training on, you know, how do you how do you do counseling? How do you uh, you know how you know how do you interact with a patient in a waiting room or a waiting space while we're waiting for the next clinician to show up? Uh, how do you do documentation in a in a in a virtual setting versus a a, a physical setting? Regulations around that, etc. So so lots of evolution is going to be happening again, twenty twenty one and beyond, in in enabling physicians to be more efficient virtually. Now your last prediction 
is about leaping to supra operability, and that's about data connectivity, and that's sort of beyond the EHR interoperability. That's something we've been talking about. What is supra operability? Yeah. So, so the need for data is I talked about AI surveillance a second ago, right? Which mining all the data in the EHR, but to truly care for patients over time in various settings, especially the topics you brought up at the beginning, which is patient engagement, where now the patient is no longer in a clinical setting, the data is not in the EHR, is probably being collected by wearables or, or you know, a whole bunch of other places by other systems. The it's it, What's going to be key is finding models for all of that data to be aggregatable. So that's going to be a, you know, sort of top of mind for us. Another area is that once that data is now coming from a multitude of sources, it's not normalized. So something we have to grapple with as an industry is how to normalize all of that data and make sense of it. We can, again, you know, sort of, if you have dirty data, you do dirty predictions. So we need to get that data to be normalized, standardized, and clean so that we can, it can be leveraged uh, effectively. Um, but, but, but I go back to what you brought up at the beginning, which is, you know, as we do more and more prediction and more and more aggregation of data, et cetera, um, you know, one of the things that is going to be top of mind is this sort of data bias, which will cause AI bias and ensuring that we are getting data from, from everyone, from all the areas we want to get uh, data from. Um, I'll add one thing around that that point is as more and more um, of our workflows and processes, and we talked about virtual care and telehealth and all of that, and as more and more become digital, uh, we recognize that, at, you know, in this country, we have digital divide. And what we need to ensure is that the digital divide does not create a healthcare divide. And, and that digital divide could potentially create a data divide, right? Where we're only learning on people who are engaged digitally, but we're not learning on people who are not engaged digitally. So, so that's, that's another area that is top of mind. It should be top of mind for us as an industry on how to not make that digital divide grow into, in, into sort of having healthcare ramifications. Good point. Well, Jean-Claude, I appreciate uh, you putting this thought into these various predictions. Uh, it's been a time with the crisis and the pandemic where a lot of people are looking right at the current moment um, and uh, and not looking ahead a little bit. So it's been it's been very good. Now, I want to change the topic and ask you about any books that you're reading and anything that you may recommend. Yeah. So um, at night, I read children's books for my kids. Good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah. They don't um, like to talk about super operability and so on. <laughs> Probably they don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but a book I'm reading actually I'm reading Sapiens now. Um it's you know, I find it a really interesting book, uh sort of not not linked up to technology, yeah, uh, or to healthcare. And uh but but it's an interesting perspective on uh on how we've evolved uh sort of as as humanity. Oh, that's a good, uh, definitely a good choice. Yeah, I have a mix on the uh, on the show. Some people reading, you know, business books about being an entrepreneur and so on, or technology ones, and some that are, you know, totally off in a different uh, direction. Which it sounds like uh, sounds like where you are. Now that's uh, that's very much appreciated. Well, Jean Claude Sagbini, I want to thank you. Uh, 
CTO of, of Walters Kluwer Health for coming on the Health Biz Podcast today and talking about your predictions for 2021 and beyond. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.